when we seek a pound of flesh because they took a pound of flesh, we really embed the next conflict in what we're doing today. But when we give people dignity and humanity and help them find meaningful off-ramps, they become some of our best allies in preventing the generational spread of violence. On January 6, thousands of pro-Trump rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol, hoping to overturn the results of a Democratic election. Dozens of people were injured. Five people died. An entire country is reeling from the violence and its aftermath. Sadly, this kind of upheaval is nothing new. What's new for some of us is seeing it play out in real time, so close to home. How do we heal? How do we meaningfully address what is broken? And most importantly of all, how do we stop the spread of violence before it's too late? I spoke with Jeremy Courtney, founder and CEO of Preemptive Love, about how we can respond to the attack on the Capitol, to the phenomenon of Trumpism, and how we can provide off-ramps for those who want to find a way home. This is our conversation. So, Jeremy, I'm curious, when you heard the news on Wednesday, and I think I texted you at one point and asked if you were by a TV or something, but when you saw those images of the Capitol under siege, what was your reaction? There's definitely a part of me that wants to say I, I was shocked, but I, I toured the U.S. last year, coast to coast, north to south, and every single night on tour, we talked about how... The seeds of civil war have already been planted and that it had a strong possibility, if not likelihood, of escalation if white people in particular didn't address their family, cousin, moms, dad, uncles, pastors, people sitting next to them in PTA meetings and church meetings. So you, would you say that you were surprised or not surprised? I, I knew it was a, I took it seriously. I took it as a very real possibility. But storming the Capitol itself and overrunning the Capitol and screaming, hang Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, that exact scenario was nowhere on my, on my radar. So yeah, I was surprised in the specifics of it, but I wasn't surprised in the general trajectory of civil war, sedition, things of that nature. One of the things that makes it so hard to make sense of it all, is the fact that there were several things going on all at once. I mean, you have a president at a rally inciting people to march on the Capitol, even saying falsely that he's going to go with them. And then an hour or two later at the Capitol itself, you you see everything from, you know, some people waving Trump flags, just kind of generally milling about. And then, then you have the people with the zip tie handcuffs who are going through the halls of Congress. How do we assess things like culpability and complicity? And how do we even look at one another after this? Arguing for a nuanced disaggregation of a movement is something that we have done for years. And I, I think the easiest parallel to draw is the way that we've parsed out and talked about the broad thing that people were talking about in 2014 called ISIS. 
when they sprang onto the world stage and commanded the entire world's attention, uh, it was easy to, to paint them with one broad stroke. And I think we're seeing something very similar right now in Trumpism as a movement. And it's easy to paint everyone who was anywhere in the vicinity with a broad stroke. And I think that would be a mistake. Just like I think it was a mistake to paint the entire ISIS movement with a broad brush. So back in 2014, I, I came up with a framework that had five levels to think about ISIS, from the people who, you know, ISIS rolls up on their town and they were conquered. So now suddenly they were just kind of going along to get along. To collaborators, people who actually worked with ISIS but maybe didn't do anything actively violent. To criminals, people who wielded a weapon and did something in the name of ISIS and harmed, caused physical harm to others. To cultists who actually believe the theology and the end times rhetoric. And then I think at the very tip of the pyramid are people that I just thought of as power. They were in it for the money. They were in it for the influence. They were in it for the power. They weren't even believers necessarily. And I, I use that as a framework and I think there's some kind of parallel that we can find in the Trumpist movement. I think this moment demands something equally nuanced. If you, if you take that framework and apply it to Trumpism writ large, how do you see the different groups and, and how do you engage the different groups? Are there groups within that world that can be engaged differently than other groups? This is why I think the pyramid is helpful and, and even essential. Because if all we do is refer to Trump supporters as those who are like the very tip of the pyramid, it's easy to write them all off in a way that would only further inflame and entrench this conflict that we have. I don't say this strictly as an American, because as an American, my heart is inflamed. I say this more as an experienced conflict person. Uh, I say this based on what I've seen in war zones across Iraq and Syria and beyond. So I've got, I've got like five layers of the Trumpist pyramid that I've been thinking through. I think the bottommost layer is the coalitionists. These are the people who are like basically saying I'm a Republican or at least I'm not a Democrat. And for that reason, I'm with Trump. There wasn't a lot more to it than that. So these are the people who they might have been on some level deeply uncomfortable with Trump, but they were just more uncomfortable with the alternative as they saw it? Yeah, I think so. I, I use this word to describe the people who, who are still mostly in because of their redness, not because of a, any kind of deeper ideology, but because I know that I'm team red, and, and that's about it. If, if that's your driving motivation, then I think Trump likely just provided a very large wedge here where... These people could maybe find an off-ramp from Trumpism. A layer up from that, I, I start to see things intensifying. So that's, that's what I'm kind of thinking of or calling confederates. I, kind of, I do mean this in the sense of like the confederate flag. They are, it's kind of the, the twofold meaning of that. They're, they're going deeper into the confederation of this group of people, yes. 
and they are getting closer and closer to rallying around what that Confederate flag stands for. It's a kind of nativism. It's got a lot more overt racism baked in. Going up from there, put like a broader range of conspiracists. This is, this is like the election was stolen. This is Democrats are inherently vile, conniving people. And so of, we know they couldn't win on their own. So this group of people is buying into the conspiracy fed to them that, uh, you know, there's something foul going on here. This starts to get into a much, much more difficult place where finding an off-ramp is difficult. Up from conspiracists, that fourth level I see, is QAnon. This is a specific movement of conspiracy theory. It's a cult, but it's even more than, it's a religion at this point that believes God has actually appointed Trump as our presidential messiah for these times. This is a level of conspiracy and a, a level of religious fervor and willful blindness that I, I genuinely do not know what the off-ramp is. They believe that there is a deep state and this global cabal of blood-guzzling Hollywood pedophile elites who Trump is on a God-given messianic mission to take down. And that every single thing we see playing out right now is really just a game of five-dimensional chess. And Trump is always six steps ahead of everybody. Trump alone knows what he's doing. And we just have to believe. And, and I just, I don't know how you help your friends and family find their way out. It's a religious deconversion that would be necessary. And that's incredibly difficult. So your focus is on the first two, maybe three tiers of that pyramid where it seems like people are more reachable, persuadable. And is that, is that how you're encouraging others who are maybe wrestling with the same question? Like, because a lot of this, a lot of these divisions are happening in our faith communities, in our families, in our workplaces, like, like nobody can hide from this anymore. Nobody has the luxury of looking away. What would you say, how do you encourage somebody to even approach that? I take some lessons and cues from what I've seen in the Muslim communities where I've lived for the last 20 years. You know, Christians in the U.S. and across Europe were very eager to demand that Muslim clerics denounce ISIS back in 2014, 15, 16. And there's a parallel here. Let me say it like this. Muslim leaders were dealing with a similar set of questions in the days of Al-Qaeda, in the days of ISIS, trying to figure out how do we prevent the angry, agitated, disaffected youth and men in our movements and sometimes women in our movements from fully disaffecting into the, the Islamist terror camp. People are kind of, can kind of be of two minds. One, we should speak very forthrightly and very clear and denounce them all the way so as to give clear religious authoritative leadership. But somewhere along the way, certain religious leaders start to sense that there is already a movement afoot inside their ranks. And because of that, they start to ask themselves questions about the long game. Well, if I come out too strong right now, maybe I will drive these five youth further into the arms of ISIS. So maybe I should take the long road. These are legitimate strategic questions when, when that is the true motivation causing a religious leader, Christian or Muslim 
or whatever to question how heavy they should go in, how clearly they should go in in a, in a denouncing kind of way or a spiritual guidance direction kind of way. What I think is not, what is not helpful is when your people are already gone, when they are already full QAnon, when they are already full conspiracists, trying to placate them, holding your tongue, holding back, that is, that's not dealing in good faith because those people are gone. You got to let them go. They have already given up on your spiritual authority. They've already given up on your voice. They're not listening to you. I mean, many of us were raised in religious traditions that praised bravery and courage and backbone in the face of adversity, in the face of falsehood, in the face of apostasy, you know? And it seems that there's just way too much equivocation going on right now for fear of the fringe. Where I think the pyramid helps us is by disaggregating these groups of people and saying, look, you probably still have significant amounts of red state people and confederate people. Racist? Yes. Nativist? Yes. Xenophobic? Yes. But they're your people. And they're still generally orientated to, to listen to your religious voice. So speak up fast before you lose them too. Because once they start moving into that level of fringe conspiracy, and once Trump becomes their messiah, it's way too late at that point. If, if your church, or your pastors, or your Christian influencers, or if you are one of those people listening, and you are still a week in or five years in giving vague prayer tweets and pray for our divided nation. That's not leadership. We need people who will step up. It's not just about denouncing the violence. We need a full-scale teaching regimen on white nationalism, white terrorism, the, the weaponizing of Christianity throughout history the roots of American white Christian terror against black people. We need a full years-long curriculum on this, and it belongs in the church. So I got one last question. It seems like that there are these two competing impulses right now, and they're on a collision course. On the, on the one hand, you've got that impulse to call for peace. Like, we've had a lot of calls to, let, let's just put this behind us. And then on the other hand, you've got voices out there saying, well, there have to be consequences. There has to be justice. And not just for the people who rioted, not just for the people who broke into the Capitol, but also for the people who enabled them, the people who emboldened and incited them. My question to you as a peacemaker, as someone who has lived through the disruption of ISIS and the aftermath of ISIS and all of the questions around how to reckon with the fallout from that, you know, how do you see these two competing calls, the call to lower the temperature, the call for peace on the one hand, and the call to, for there to be consequences? How do we actually begin to move forward? Okay, let me, let me paint a scenario because I, maybe it will help. Because I think people have fundamentally misunderstood our work for years as we've been showing up on the front lines of groups like ISIS and making an express decision, explicit decision to help people who were on that ISIS pyramid somewhere. So let's say, I'll just be generic here. Let's say red state one, two, and three all secede 
tomorrow and declare themselves the equivalent of a, a Trumpist caliphate. And, and they terrorize Democrats and black people among them. And that goes on for some three, four, five years. And near the tail end of the Biden administration, there's carpet bombing of these red state cities to drive them out. And people who were once loyal to the Trumpist narrative, people who are somewhere on that Trump pyramid, are now being indiscriminately carpet bombed from the sky without any regard for whether they are kind of just go along to get along people, whether they're somehow non-criminal collaborators, whether they're criminal, violent collaborators, whatever. They're just being indiscriminately carpet bombed and, and tried to wipe them off. Preemptive love would be on the front lines seeking to provide food, shelter, humanitarian services, and show a kind of off-ramp and humanity to those people who hurt and harmed our fellow Americans, our neighbors, because, number one, they still are humans and have human rights. And we believe that the seeds of the next war are often embedded in how we respond to today's conflicts. And if there are any people who are willing to take the off-ramp, those people often become great evangelists against further cultic behavior. Giving people a meaningful off-ramp, helping them pay the debt to society that they owe, and then restoring them, that's, that's an important part of how we stop the spread of ideas that lead to violence. When we seek a pound of flesh because they took a pound of flesh, we really embed the next conflict in what we're doing today. But when we give people dignity and humanity and help them find meaningful off-ramps, they become some of our best allies in preventing the generational spread of violence. So we have to get out of this reductive thinking that we can either have peace or justice. You know, the slogan, the mantra that you often hear at Black Lives Matter rallies, for example, no justice, no peace, that's not meant to pit them at odds with one another. It's meant to, it's meant to enumerate the step one and then step two. If you want to jump to step two and just say peace, peace, before pursuing justice, that's, that's not viable. That doesn't get us where we need to go. And yet it's exactly what people, many people are, are doing right now. They're saying peace, peace, but, but there is no peace because there has been no repentance. There's been no recanting. There's been no effort at restoration. And without that, you can't have reconciliation, which is to say a, a true, full, flourishing societal peace. Do you feel like we can get there? I always believe we can get there. It's a question of how long it's going to take. I absolutely believe that society, history, continues to move toward awakening, toward, a, toward an opening up, toward a more inclusive, caring posture. But it often comes with three steps forward and then two steps back. And then we get stuck two steps back for a while before we take another 
two steps forward and then one step back. We are, we're moving forward, but it's not strictly up and to the right. It's not strictly progressive, you know, in some kind of never is there a setback kind of way. And, and setback is a comfortable word that often means many people lose their lives. Many people are kept down. Many people are oppressed. I think there are some real gaps that are growing between us. And what is needed is a, a right-tempered understanding of the work that we're up against and the work that we're in, which is why at Preemptive Love, we're so focused above all else on recruiting peacemakers. We're not out to recruit a bunch of followers on social media. We're not out to recruit a bunch of donors. That is a dead end. If all we're doing is recruiting donors, then we get stuck like so many churches right now who don't know how to speak out because a certain group of people have all the money and they're afraid those people are going to leave them. What I want us focused on and what I indeed think we are focused on is raising peacemakers, raising up peacemakers, recruiting peacemakers. And if we can bring together a community around the world who's committed to the long arc and the long arduous work of peace, I think we can weather anything and, and over the generations to come be one of the strongest forces for, for progress in the world. Learn more about our peacemaking work and see the pyramid of Trumpism discussed on this podcast at our website, preemptivelove.org podcast. If you'd like to join our community of peacemakers and support our work to heal all that's tearing us apart in our own communities and around the world, you can make your first monthly gift today at preemptivelove.org. Thanks for listening.